and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode takes on a different possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start by going to the future for the first bit, a little bit of an audio drama, and then we come back to today to talk to real life experts about what that future would really be like. Got it? Let's go to the year 2072. Hello, come on through everybody. If everybody could scoot down a little to make room, perfect. Welcome again to the museum. My name is TK. I'll be taking you on the tour today. So as you can see, we're actually in the middle of a long hallway here. The tour begins in the middle of our timeline rather than the beginning or the end. To my right, you've got the distant past reaching all the way back to 1704 when the colony of Carolina developed the nation's first slave patrol. And to my left, you've got the more recent past stretching all the way to the present and in the small wing beyond that, the future. But we start in the year 2037 because this is the year that peace and safety really changed completely. Now, here's a question for you all. Raise your hand if you're old enough to remember human police officers. Okay, a few of you. So, for the rest of you, you might not actually know this, but in this country, we used to have this thing called police. And they were actually human people who would maintain law and order in our communities. But in 2037, that all changed, and law enforcement agencies were shut down throughout the entire United States. So that's the big, pivotal moment. And now, let's walk to the end of the hall to start at the beginning, and talk about how we got to that point, and where we've gone from there. Walk this way, please. Okay, so in this future, there are no more human police officers. The future of policing is really, really complicated. And also, and this might be the understatement of the year, it's a controversial topic. On this episode, we're not going to try and give a full picture of what the future of policing might be. That would take hours. Instead, we're going to focus on two really specific pieces of this topic. First, we'll talk about robots and what it might be like if we replaced human law enforcement with robotic law enforcement. Then we're going to talk about a future with no cops at all. So let's start with robots. Early in the morning on July 8, 2016, the Dallas police used a robot to kill a human. The man they killed was a sniper, a guy named Micah Johnson, who showed up to an otherwise peaceful protest in Dallas, Texas, and shot at least 12 police officers, killing five of them. Eventually, the police cornered Johnson in a parking garage for five hours, and to end the standoff, the cops sent in a robot carrying a bomb, which detonated and killed Johnson. The technology involved here is actually incredibly simple. It's basically a remote-controlled truck with a little arm on it, to which police strap a bomb. In some cases, they actually duct tape the bomb onto the crane. But even though it's simple, the use of a robot to kill someone is still a big deal. And a lot of people were shocked by it. A bomb delivered by a robot isn't exactly the kind of policing that you see on Law & Order. No, it's it's not something that you think of as something that police departments might have. We all have, like, Richard Scary children's books about, you know, what a policeman looks like and, and what their job is. This is Madeline Ashby, a futurist and science fiction writer. And for people like her who've been keeping their eye on the future of robotics and policing, this bomb delivery robot was not shocking at all. 
the U.S. government has been finding ways to justify its procurement budget in the Middle East and, and elsewhere by bringing military technologies to uh, domestic shores and to uh, and to small town police departments and big city police departments as well. We've seen an increase in the militarization of police forces with them using weapons like LRADs and, and noise cannons and tanks and like different types of vehicles and, and different types of weaponry and even different types of armor than they than they once did. So it's inevitable that something like what was a bomb disposal droid or a bomb disposal robot uh, might get repurposed by a police department that had access to it. And in fact, bomb robots aren't new at all. In the 1970s, a robot known as the Wheelbarrow was introduced on the streets of Northern Ireland. Ostensibly, the wheelbarrow was supposed to find and pick up bombs, but it doesn't take that much for a robot to reverse that motion. And bomb robots were introduced in the United States in the 1990s. In fact, the first few models were designed by iRobot, the same company that makes your friendly little vacuum pal the Roomba. Let's just hope that your Roomba doesn't start talking to those bomb robots. Police departments all over the United States have robots like these. According to an NPR analysis, the Pentagon distributed 479 bomb robots to law enforcement agencies across the country between 2006 and 2014. In 2015, a bomb robot like this was used to deliver pizza and a cell phone to a man threatening to jump off a bridge in California. It worked, and the man was talked out of suicide. This is all to say that law enforcement departments all over the United States have had these robots for years. But the case in Dallas in 2016, where a robot was used to deliver a fatal bomb, was a big step for these robots. According to experts interviewed at the time, it was the first intentional use of a lethally armed robot by the U.S. police. In other words, Dallas was the first American police force to use their bomb robot to intentionally kill someone. That we know of. In some ways, this trend mirrors the trend to automation more generally, right? Lots of people are losing their jobs to robots, so why not cops too? Well, I think largely we've seen a trend toward automation and a trend toward eliminating the human from the the equation in terms of making those types of martial decisions. And that's part of a larger trend toward automation because it's cheap. It's cheaper to buy a robot than it is to pay a human being a pension. It's cheaper to buy a robot than it is to um, to invest in training up talent. And it's also way easier for a government or for a corporation to talk about the shiny new robot that they bought that kills people uh, than it is to say, yeah, we're going to make these young men and women kill people. The same arguments you hear for automation in other industries apply just as much to police officers. What is convenient is usually cheap, and what is cheap is usually magically turns out to be what is convenient for the people making that decision. One of the most attractive things about um, about using some repurposing something like a bomb disposal robot is that after that in a scenario like Dallas where you have already lost people, um, you don't necess- you don't want to lose more, and sending in a machine to do the job almost ensures that you won't. Um, so in that way, it, it's, it is a sheer numbers game that it does, that, that it can appear to be more convenient. This is a big concern for cops, and it's actually one that's addressed in the classic dystopian film RoboCop. You didn't think I'd go this whole episode without mentioning RoboCop, did you? 
In RoboCop, in case you haven't seen it, Detroit is on the verge of collapse as crime ravages the city. In response, the Detroit Police Department essentially hands over control of its operations to a giant evil mega company called Omni Consumer Products. And Omni is the one that proposes replacing the human police officers with robots. I'm skipping over a bunch of plot points here from the movie. Uh, You should just go watch it. But basically, they wind up using an injured cop to build this human-machine combination that they call RoboCop. What are your prime directives? Serve the public trust, protect the innocent, uphold the law. The movie is an interesting look at a lot of things. Life, death, the nature of humans, whether cyborgs are alive or not, what humanity really is, all that. But in the context of this episode in particular, it's interesting to note that in 1987, filmmakers were already addressing the dangers of letting giant companies take over and provide the material support for law enforcement in the United States. And it's true that, by and large, law enforcement guys don't really like the idea of robocops. The thing about this argument about robot cops is every individual person and every individual interaction is an individual. And robots can't do individual. Robots do many, many multitudes of thousands of the same exact thing. The robot arm reaches down, grabs the pallet, puts the pallet on the truck. The robot arm moves back, reaches down, grabs the pallet, puts the pallet on the truck. The robot arm, so, and so on, and so on. Law enforcement doesn't work that way. You show up, you don't know what you're going to get. Traffic stop could turn into nothing of a traffic stop. Traffic stop could turn into a gunfight. And everything in between. This is Doug Wiley. And I'll spell it for you. W Y as in Yankee, L-L-I-E. No surprises on the spelling of Doug. <laughs> My uh, title is Editor-at-Large for Police One. Police One is the largest online resource for law enforcement. We'll come back to Doug in the second half of the show, but for now, let's just say that he is skeptical of RoboCops. You can have robots policing robots, um, but you need people policing people. On the flip side, robots might actually be able to handle some scenarios better than their fleshy counterparts. Imagine, for example, being able to tell a robot or interacting with a robot that could detect whether or not you had a concussion. So that if you had been involved in, a, in an incident of domestic violence, the robot could look at your pupils, understand that one was dilated wider than the other, and say, we need to get you to a hospital because obviously you have a concussion. A human police officer might not notice a tiny detail like that. And therefore, because they are dealing with a concussed person who's slurring or, or who, who can't remember certain details, might then also discount her tes- his or her testimony uh, or his or her accounting of, of events. Or a, a robocop that is dealing with a young woman on, on campus might be able to immediately test her for GHB or another date rape drug just by like with a little prick of the finger. And that's actually really valuable information, and it's something that current police forces can't and won't do. But there's another argument that I've seen made for robot cops that we should talk about, too. And that's that robocops might make us all safer. They might cut down on human error in policing. The idea here is that instead of training cops about bias or trying to reform the existing law enforcement agencies, many of whom have deeply racist and problematic cultures, we should just cut our losses and replace them all with robots. Robots can't be biased, right? At this point, if you're a regular listener to the show, you probably know what I'm about to say. Robots are made by humans, and humans are biased. Science has shown us that over and over and over again. And the idea that a robot that we make will somehow be free of that bias is... wrong. It's just wrong! If you learned one thing from this podcast, I hope it's that all of the things that we build are inherently biased because they are built by us. 
And we actually even have cases in policing to show that technology is mimicking the biases of the people who make it. There are currently algorithms in use across the country that are supposed to do something called predictive policing, guessing where the police should be and where crime might pop up based on an algorithm trained on past data. There are other algorithms being used by the courts to decide which inmates should be paroled and which ones shouldn't. And both of those kinds of algorithms have been shown to be racially biased. We've seen algorithms that are used for predictive policing in places like New York and, and other major cities across the U.S. that do reflect the bias of, their, of both their programmers and their users, right? Algorithms grow to reflect the user. Um, the reason that, that, that Netflix knows what you want or that Amazon knows what you want is because you keep telling it what you want. If you keep telling the algorithm that who you want to arrest are young black men, it's going to give you back young black men. It's a mirror more so than anything else. We've, we've started to see that happen already. It's entirely possible that we could have very similar police forces as we have now, even though they are mach- primarily machines. There's even a company right now called Taser International that is hoping to build an algorithm that can watch police body camera footage and predict what will happen in the moment and give that data live to police officers in the field. The company has literally said that it is basically using RoboCop and Minority Report as roadmaps. To me, that is not a good thing. And Madeline pointed out another key issue with turning the keys to the city over to robotic enforcers. Right now, in theory, if a human police officer kills someone, they have to explain why. And if they kill someone that they should not have killed, there are, in theory, consequences. Now, that process is very broken, and we don't really have time to get into that exactly. But in theory, at least, police officers are supposed to be held accountable for their decisions. The question is whether robots would face that same kind of accountability. Whose fault is it if a robot codes all black people as high on the danger scale and winds up shooting someone for no good reason? Is it the programmers? Is it the precinct that bought the robot? Does the robot stand trial? The machine doesn't have to go on trial. The the machine never has to have has to do that. I mean, like a family might still sue. There might still be a civil suit or a wrongful death suit. But it's a lot easier to defend a a quote-unquote faulty machine or a faulty algorithm or something that was buggy or whatever, always broken, than it is to, to, to defend a police officer. And it is, I think it's a lot simpler. Like suddenly there's a built-in defense, right? Quite literally, there's a built-in defense. Ethicists have been talking about the murky questions raised by killer robots for a long time. After all, it might be new that a police force in the United States is using it against a U.S. citizen, but these killing machines have been at work on the battlefield for a long time. There's even an organization called the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, and they've been pushing for the United Nations to sort out exactly what kinds of rules apply to robot death machines. But right now, nobody really knows. Those questions haven't been answered. Here's another question. If we do wind up with robocops... What will they look like? Will they take the form of humans or something else? So far, the robots at work haven't been humanoid at all. They're little pods roaming around a mall or a remote-controlled car. And Madeline says that you shouldn't assume that future Robocops will be human-shaped. The morphology of robots stands to change our behavior to them. If a robot that looks like another man walks in on you beating your wife and says, is there a problem here? You might react as a human to another human. When something that looks like the Mars rover busts down your door, 
and just blares a siren at you <laughs> and and someone talks through it, that's something else. If you can try to imagine talking to Wally about your drug deal that went bad, I think that weirdly talking to a thing that looks like a machine might be more comforting and might calm you down a little bit faster. If you're actually designing to get people to respect this machine and also calm down in in the face of it, or alternatively be utterly terrified by it, you have to sort of sidestep the uncanny valley scenario of something that looks too much like a human being. Probably what will happen is that different robots will be designed for different policing tasks. Ghost in the Shell standalone complex and the Ghost in the Shell sort of franchise had the Tachikomas, right? Mm, and Tachikomas yeah. are six-legged tank robots that you can climb into and ride, or they can act completely autonomously. And they can they get around not having hands by having sort of little claw-shaped, almost like egg beater type things that are on um, little casters, and they can shoot webbing. In this future, I'm imagining that every police precinct has a whole warehouse of robots in a variety of forms. Some like birds and dogs and squids and maybe some humans and some wild hybrids. What if they all came to life at night and hung out with each other like it was Toy Story? Except with killer robots instead of children's toys. Somebody should write that comic book. Okay, while you think about that comic book, uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what it would be like and whether it would be possible to have a functioning world without the police at all. So far in this episode, we've talked about what it would be like to replace human police officers with robocops. But what would it be like if we didn't replace those human cops with any cops at all? I think this is a really interesting question in light of what we were just talking about with robocops. Because one of the arguments that I've seen raised when it comes to robotic police is that law enforcement in the United States is so broken that it might actually be easier to replace them all with robots than to reform the culture of policing. I don't know if that's true, and we know that assuming that a robotic replacement would be free of bias is false. That's been proven a lot. But what if we didn't have police at all? Are they a necessary condition in this world? A lot of people seem to assume so, but it's always good to question our assumptions. And many activists in the United States have proposed abolishing the police and the prison system. We explained the prison side of abolition in Season 1, Episode 14, about the ways in which life extension technology might impact prison sentences. But what about abolishing the police? Is that even possible? Well, unsurprisingly, Doug, our law enforcement guy, thinks that would be a bad idea. I wrote an article some time ago uh, addressing this topic, and in it I quoted Hobbes. It would be nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, life would be very, very difficult for a certain segment of the population who would be um, victimized by career criminals. And this is the argument that I've seen a lot in the various Facebook and Twitter fights that invariably break out about police brutality. There's this idea that we must have the police, and that without police, we would descend into some kind of apocalyptic state where everyone is just murdering each other constantly, and it's like the purge all the time. But it seems to me like there's probably another way to think about this. And to do that, I called Walida Imarisha. I think that you cannot understand the way that policing happens currently without understanding the history. And I think that there's been a lot of work done to embed in each of us and in the society this notion that police are indispensable, that they've always been here, the thin blue line is the only thing that protects us from complete chaos and, and brutality and anarchy in the streets. And Walida points out that history doesn't exactly support this idea that without the police, we'd all be hiding in the corners of our homes 
trying to avoid roving bands of criminals. And I think that it's important to recognize that is a conscious creation, this concept that police have always existed and so must always exist. Uh, The reality is police have not always existed, that there have been many different forms historically of ways that communities have addressed issues of harm and kept themselves whole. Walida is a historian, a writer, a poet, and she currently lectures at Stanford University. She's also the author of a book called Angels with Dirty Faces, Three Stories of Crime, Prison, and Redemption. And she points out that in many communities, the police have never been the first line of defense when something is going on. As late as the 1960s, black folk in the South, for example, rarely called the police because so many officers were actually members of the KKK. It was only a few years ago, that the concept of calling the police, especially in the South, was even a possibility for Black folks, right? That a few decades ago, that there are many people who are still alive who knew you never called the police because the police and the Klan were often one in one in the South, right? So in the 1930s, in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, these police were upholding these brutal institutions of segregation. And so Communities who were oppressed had to figure out how to address issues within their community without even the thought of calling the police. It's worth pausing here to give a little bit of history about policing in the United States. A lot of things led up to the formation of a codified police force, but the biggest one was slavery. Modern police forces are direct descendants of slave patrols. During slavery, these groups of vigilantes were set up to hunt down and punish any slaves who might run away or try to revolt. After slavery, those patrols largely maintained their function in upholding oppression. They made sure that the now freed black people of the United States could not exercise their rights, and they punished anybody who tried. Around the 1830s, those slave patrols were then made official by turning them into legitimate police departments. Many scholars like Michelle Alexander, Angela Davis, and others have argued that this history is inescapable and totally shapes the ways in which law enforcement operates today. Even the director of the FBI has admitted that this ugly history impacts the way law enforcement works and contributes to racial bias in policing. Again, this episode can't really unpack the entire history of policing and all of the ways that it can or should be fixed. So let's go back to our more narrow question. Is it possible for a community to thrive without the police? Walida is also one of the people who coined the term visionary fiction. Visionary fiction essentially argues that activists are engaging in a form of futurist fiction. They're imagining a world for themselves and their people that doesn't yet exist. And to her, one of the futures that she would like to imagine and to see happen is one without the police or prisons. I believe that we actually have to abolish police, we have to abolish prisons, because they're actually not making us more safe, they're making us less safe. And we need to begin to now re-envision different ways of, of addressing harm that's done in community and making sure that hum- communities are whole and accountable outside of these carceral mentalities. And I think that there are many, many, many people around the world, here in the U.S., historically and cur- currently and futuristically, who are, who are creating those systems and doing just that. And Walida wants to replace that carceral mentality with something called transformative justice. Transformative justice says, yes, we must address the harm that people do to each other, you know, most often in community, and it is often serious and, and, you know, sometimes horrific harm. And we have to understand that we have to also change the larger society 
to truly transform the situations that created this harm. And so, yes, we need to build alternatives to, to policing through uh, you know, a huge variety of, of different ways from community mediation to um, you know, accountability processes and community, but also part of abolition of police and prisons is addressing racism and white supremacy and classism and sexism and homophobia and inequalities in housing and inequalities in education, right? That we actually have to address the ways that this society is fundamentally unjust before we can, we can truly create real justice. This all might seem kind of foreign to you. It did to me originally, probably because I'm a white person who has never been forced to question my relationship with law enforcement. And it also might seem kind of vague. The system we have now is clear-cut and simple, if brutal. You do something bad, you get arrested, you go to trial, and you go to jail. You're reprimanded with a specific set of predetermined punishments. Now, what those punishments are depends on who you are. It's not really that one-to-one, it's not that codified, but that's basically how it works, and in theory, we all just move on. Transformative justice is more complicated. The world is more complicated. And Walida points out a lot of us probably do have experience with handling justice without calling the police. In our individual lives, we we do engage in that, in holding those complexities, right? And you know, one example I always use is around, you know, if we're at a family barbecue and you know everyone's getting just lit right and uncle joe is like three sheets to the wind just tipsy beyond words he's staggering around and he's like okay guys i'm gonna head out now i'm gonna drive myself home we don't call the police and say uncle joe is about to commit a serious crime you need to come lock him up right even though you know drunk driving kills Uh, immense amounts of people every year. But what we say is, we know Uncle Joe, we are going to do what we can to keep Uncle Joe safe, as well as keep other people safe. And so we come up with a variety of creative solutions based on the situation. Oh, Uncle Joe, let me call you a cab, right? Give me your keys. You're going to sleep it off on my couch tonight. I'm going to drive you home, right? Hey, Uncle Joe, why don't you just sit down and watch this movie with us for a little bit, knowing that Uncle Joe probably is going to pass out 20 minutes into the movie, you know, if you know, you get real creative with solutions when they are people that you know and love. I don't want you to discount Walida as a naive idealist. In a lot of the critiques I've read about police reform and abolition and transformative justice, critics act like these activists think that crime is going to magically disappear. This is the main critique Doug had of this idea. The overwhelming majority of crimes are committed by a very, very small population of people by comparison to the 300-plus million citizens who populate the United States. And those people wouldn't just go away overnight. But I think that that is not quite a fair critique of what these people are talking about. Because Walida and the activists that have written about transformative justice have never said that they think that people will suddenly stop inflicting pain onto other people. And Walida is very frank about the challenges that come with removing systems like prisons and the police. In her book, Angels with Dirty Faces, she addresses the big question. What do we do with rapists and murderers? And I think that this is the part that is really challenging for folks and is really uh, admittedly unfulfilling for folks. It is easier as, as folks who want to abolish prisons and police to talk about the majority of folks who are incarcerated for nonviolent crimes, for drug offenses. 
um, and that those folks should not be there. And I think that we see the tide shifting in, in some ways in the mainstream that folks are beginning to be much more open to that than they were 10 or, or 15 years ago. But I, I think that to be true abolitionists, we also have to say, um, what do we do when, when people do do serious harm? And I think ultimately there aren't any easy answers, which is also, I think, why it's easier to say, well, let's just lock folks up because it's a solution. Whereas transformative justice says each solution is unique because each issue is unique because everyone involved is unique in that situation. There are some local programs around the country that are trying this approach. Where I live in New York City, there's this program called the Safe Outside the System Collective, which is part of the Audre Lorde Project. The project really focuses on community-based strategies to dealing with hate and violence, as opposed to going to the police. And it works. They have really great success in all sorts of metrics. Their work to address harm done against, uh, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer uh, folks of color in community, what it did was it actually strengthened that entire community and made that entire community better able to withstand the forces of gentrification that that every community in, uh, you know, in urban settings is, is under attack from right now. I think the challenge with all of this stuff is scale, right? How do you take this community that has done so well and try to learn from it and apply those lessons other places and figure out which lessons don't apply other places? These are all of the really hard questions. And Walida knows it. Ultimately, we're going to have to struggle with each individual issue. And I think that that's, I think that's incredibly difficult and unfulfilling for us in a society that focuses on easy answers and quick fixes. But one future Walida is very sure that she doesn't want is RoboCops. I think, I think it's a terrifying, horrific idea that, I mean, honestly keeps me up at night. Robots don't, you know, they're not creating themselves at this point. Humans are creating them. Humans are coding them. Humans are programming them. Any AI, any robot, any, you know, creation is learning from us. And so if we don't address the institutional inequality that programs each of us with these racialized, oppressive frames, those frames are absolutely going to be transmitted to any sort of robot or AI that gets created, and they will not have a moral compass to be able to question that, you know, as they as they move forward. So that's three votes against RoboCops. Four if you count me. Sorry, Murphy. That's all for this episode. For more information about robotic law enforcement and transformative justice, head to flashforwardpod.com where I will post a bunch of links. You might have noticed that this episode is a little bit shorter than our episodes have been in the past couple months. Um, My full-time job at ESPN, where I'm producing these audio documentaries, is really ramping up, and we are launching our audio documentary series in June. So keep an eye out for that. I will talk to you about it when it comes out, but it is taking up most of my time. So these episodes, this episode, and next month's episode are probably going to be a little bit shorter than you're used to. Uh, It's just a lot of work to do both at the same time. Okay. Flash Forward is produced by me, by myself, Rose Evelet. That's part of why this episode is shorter. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. Special thanks this month to Brent Rose. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter or Facebook or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. 
I love hearing your ideas. I never get tired of them, so keep sending them. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you are right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that too. Go to flashforwardpod.com support to see all of the ways that you can give. And if giving in the monetary sense is not in the cards for you, that's totally fine. Just tell a friend about the show. It actually helps. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time for a new one.